0: Good morning, everybody. So this morning, we are in Jonah chapter 3, which is on page 983 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And as you turn there, we actually have one more announcement. And that is that next Sunday, not tonight, next Sunday, the 23rd, we will be having another Sunday evening service at 6 p.m., Uh, For those of you that have come to the Sunday evening services before, it's a great way to have a normal Sunday, but on a more smaller and intimate level uh, where we pray together, we'll um, sing some songs together. It's a great time of um, additional worship together. So again, that's next Sunday, not tonight, next Sunday at 6 p.m. So we are back in Jonah. This is our four-week uh, study that Patrick and I have been leading while uh, Stephen has to deal with the, well, deal with is a strong word, has to um, <laughs> comprehend the, the, the miracle of, of, of new life. Um, and it, it's, it, it, I know it's been a joy for, for Patrick to preach the last... Two weeks, and I'm, I'm very looking forward to handling the next two weeks with you all. So Jonah 3, um, and if, if you know the story of Jonah, this is kind of where Jonah fulfills what he has been called to do. He goes and preaches to Nineveh, something that God has been telling him to do all the way back in chapter 1, but he has been running from ever since. So once again, page 983. Now, what's important to remember is that Jonah had little to no influence in Nineveh. He was not from Nineveh. He was not a traveling entertainer. He was not a noble. He wasn't from Nineveh. He was from Israel, who was a longtime enemy of Assyria, where Nineveh was the capital. So if you would think, if he came into our town, I mean, just... Just look at what people who wear Yankees, deal, Yankees gear have to deal with when they go into Boston, right? But it's a lot worse than that because this is long-time violent enemies, not just sports enemies. And yet, we see when Jonah preaches to the Ninevites, something amazing happens. They listen, they believe, and they repent. They take Jonah at his word. They trust him. Jonah does not perform any signs. He doesn't pull any tricks. He just presents the word that, the, that God has given him to, prevent, to present to the Ninevites. So the Ninevites take Jonah at his word, as we'll see, not because Jonah is a spectacular um, preacher, not because he says the magic phrasing of words to get people believe. No, the Ninevites believe Jonah because they believe that what Jonah's words are Are God's words. They recognize that's coming from God, not from Jonah. In fact, our text today even says that the Ninevites believed God. We'll see that believing God is the correct response to God's word. But even more specifically, we'll see that taking God at his word means both obeying and transforming. Obeying and transforming we'll see this through Jonah finally obeying God's command to him to go to Nineveh and we'll see the Ninevites letting God's word transform them through repentance now if we do not obey God's word then we are mistakenly saying to our loving creator that not only do we know better than him but that we do not trust him with the life that he has created On the opposite side, if we do not let God's word transform us, then we fail to recognize the importance of it and its implication on our lives. If God's word does not leave an impact on us, then we either do not fully understand it or we don't want to obey it. Another way of putting it is that obeying God's word means properly understanding it, whereas letting God's word transform us means practically understanding it. So let's read Jonah 3 and see how to properly take God at his word with both obeying and transforming. Our text today, starting Jonah 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and let the violence, and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now we are currently just past the halfway point in Jonah. If you remember, God had come to Jonah telling him to go preach against the Ninevites, but Jonah attempted to run away from the presence of the Lord which brought him onto a ship which almost capsized during a crazy storm. The only way to save the ship and the sailors on the ship was to throw Jonah overboard because he had brought it onto them. In the ocean, a giant fish swallowed Jonah and within the fish, Jonah gave a prayer of repentance to God ending with, salvation belongs to the Lord. Fish spat him up, he was back on land, and we find ourselves in our text today. It was then in the fish that Jonah realized that God was with him wherever he went. So trying to run from his presence was pretty foolish. And that since salvation belonged to the Lord, the Lord could give it to whomever he pleased, even Jonah. But now in our text today, we're about to learn and Jonah is about to learn that God can grant salvation to the Ninevites as well. So we come to our first two verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it the message that I get, tell you. Now This just sound pretty familiar, right? This is almost word for word the same exact command that God gave Jonah in the first few verses of chapter 1. You may have to flip a page or just look to the other page, but if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it, for the evil has come up before me. It's almost the exact same. The fact that these two verses are almost identical is no mistake. This is very clearly a second chance being given to Jonah after his growth that he had in the fish earlier. this shouldn't be a shock to us, right? Because we know that our God is a God of second chances. Not just second chances, but third, fourth, fifth, and so many more. We've we've seen some of this repetition from God before, like like in, in John 21, where after Peter denies Christ three times on the night he was betrayed, Jesus later gives Peter three chances to tell him that he loves him. And these second chances are important because let's let's be honest here. How often do we get things right on the first chance? I don't know about you, but often my first chance is wasted because my immediate reaction to things are often driven by my emotions. And that's what happened with Jonah, right? He didn't want the Ninevites to repent, so he flee. He ran away. But something. Change in Jonah within the fish as he understood that God wasn't asking him whether or not he wanted to go to Nineveh. He was telling him to go preach to Nineveh. That is why Jonah says at the end of the last chapter, salvation belongs to the Lord. If God wants the Ninevites to be saved, he can do it with or without Jonah. Jonah isn't hanging up this process. It is only through God's sovereign plan that he decides to use this opportunity not only to bring Nineveh to repentance, but also to grow Jonah in the process. His plan was to equip Jonah with what he needed so that Nineveh would repent. If Jonah had gone straight to Nineveh without the experience in the fish, the story might have gone differently. The Lord gave Jonah what he needed to know so that he would preach to Nineveh with the right heart. Not only that, but that Jonah would have that experience that he would write down this account that it would be a growth opportunity for whomever would read it, even us here now this morning. Praise God for his sovereignty, even thousands and thousands of years later. And of course, for those of you who know the rest of the story and knows what happens in chapter 4, this is a lesson that Jonah doesn't really completely get yet, but we'll leave that to next week. For now, Jonah is given a second chance to go again and preach to the Ninevites. It's the exact same command to deliver the word of God. Last week, Patrick showed us the, the literary technique that is used in the book of Jonah with going down versus going up. If, if you remember Jonah, it's described that he fled down to Joppa, then down into the ship, then down into the bottom of the sea with the fish. And now look at verse 3 of our text. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, rising is exactly what the Lord told him to do, right? We saw that earlier in verse 1 arise and go to Nineveh. This contrast of language, down versus up, is meant to clearly display the difference in Jonah's actions. He's finally obeying. He's no longer going down as he was the past two chapters now he's finally obeying and going in a different direction in both instances of the lord coming to jonah to go to nineveh it was with the word of the lord and now in this verse 2 jonah arose and went to nineveh according to the word of the lord and this is the same word that causes nineveh to repent as we see in verse 6 of our text today jonah arose and went to nineveh Oh, sorry, the word reads the king of Nineveh. Same thing, according to the word of the Lord, the word reads the king of Nineveh. Now, one might think that this word is something that's, that's different than what we have today, that it's only something that they had back then that has been destroyed or lost time. But this word of God is the same one that we are reading today. The same one that was in our scripture reading earlier, and the same one that we preach on every week. Looking exactly to our um, scripture reading earlier, in verse 29, if you want to flip your pamphlet, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. What would they be hearing from Moses and the prophets? The word of God given to them. And we still have this word of God. We still have what the prophet said. We still have what Moses said. It's collected for us here now in the Bible. This isn't just a thrown together compilation of of stories written from this era. This is a carefully put together collection of historical accounts of God's word being given to his people. Sometimes through prophets. Sometimes through narrative. Sometimes through letters. But always inspired by his spirit within his people. Peter says it clearly at the end of his second letter. Peter writes, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word of God that Jonah gave to the Ninevites, we're reading it today. They've read it for thousands of years, and they will continue to read it. If you would like to know more about what makes God's word his word, Patrick, Stephen, or I would love to talk to you about that. But because this this is God's word coming to Jonah, he obeys it. And this is the proper response to God's word. Not to flee as Jonah did first, not to change it, not to twist it, not to ignore it, but to obey it. We don't have to guess what God's plan is or even who he is. We have his word available to us so that we may know him and obey him. Christ himself said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's the same word. And he also said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's the same word. The Bible is not just some guidebook to take out and brush off whenever you need a pick-me-up. It's not a tool to criticize your enemies while ignoring it yourself. It's not just a historical document to see how crazy life was back then. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, as the book of Hebrews says. God has revealed himself to Jonah and to the Ninevites through his word. And he now reveals himself to us through his word. So let's seek to follow Jonah's second example, right? And to obey God's word. Now let's move forward in the second half of verse 3 and then verse 4. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now how Nineveh is described here, an exceedingly great city, that's something that God said also in the first command given to Jonah. He said, go to Nineveh, that great city. Now this could just mean that Nineveh was a big city, right? As we see that it would take three days to see it all. But it more likely means a city important to God. Now this is, this is a city that we will later see display a great example of repentance. And this is a city that God will teach Jonah about sovereignty, using it as an example. This is also a city that God will give his judgment to in later books of the Bible. Nineveh is a city important to God because of how God will use it for his glory and for the growth of his people. Even though it is not a nation that is married to God like Israel is, it's still important. God still uses it. In verse 2, Jonah gives the command again. Then in verse 3, Jonah obeys it. Now, I I think we should read this as kind of an immediate obedience. Because the first time God gave Jonah this command, we get 25 verses of Jonah ignoring it, trying to flee having some shenanigans on a boat. Here, we don't even get one verse of Jonah fighting back or refusing to obey. He obeys quickly, and he doesn't even wait until he's in the center of the city to start preaching. If Nineveh takes three days to see it all, Jonah starts on day one in the outskirts of the city. So Jonah delivers the message from God, yet 40 days and Nineveh should be overthrown. Now, I think it's safe to believe that 40 days was also given to him by God. That's not just a random number that Jonah is thinking up. And I think it's also safe to believe that this is not the only thing that Jonah said, but rather the main message given. And just as Jonah gets no verses in between receiving God's word and obeying it, neither does Nineveh. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on a sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Again, the emphasis is put on the Ninevites' immediate repentance and their immediate response, their immediate obedience. So why did Nineveh, who was a sworn enemy of Israel and therefore Israel's God, also Nineveh was a big, wealthy and powerful city Why did they repent? Because they believed God. That's what our text says today. Now the Hebrew words here mean so much more than just nonchalantly believing what someone has said, right? Stephen comes to church and says his daughter was born. No one here is like, show us. Where's the baby? You know? We're not just taking him at his word, but we have a deep trust in Stephen. We believe what he says and, you know, pictures on Facebook and stuff like that, but you know know what I'm saying. So the Hebrew words here mean so much more than just a deep believing in what the words someone says, but it's a deep trust in the person, right? This is also a a testament to Jonah's delivering of God's word as the Ninevites clearly see that this prophecy has come from God. Our text doesn't say the Ninevites believed Jonah, It says that they believed God. Now, Nineveh during this time was in a period of great unrest and fear. Think America in 2020, but much worse. Not only did they have nations threatening to fight with them, threatening to take their land, but they also had sickness and the health of the city was in turmoil. So not only did God prepare Jonah's heart by humbling him in the belly of the fish, God knew that now was the time to preach to Nineveh because they would be more likely to accept it with everything going on. It's important to read these stories, every book in the Bible, with a sense of awe for God. Even though not every single line in the Bible said, and then God did this, and then God did that. God is still expertly working behind the scenes for His glory and the good of His people. He prepared Jonah's heart to to preach to the Ninevites at the right time. He prepared the Ninevites with everything that was going on. Every time we read a part of the Bible, we should be asking ourselves, what does this say about God? How is God working to make this happen? This passage tells us that just because just now we're learning about God's plan doesn't mean that he hasn't been preparing it for years and centuries even in the past. So we see why the Ninevites believed God. And what follows is an amazing example of repentance and taking God at his word. All of that starts with just two words, believed God. And this, this is huge. So we're going to look at a couple other examples. First example is in the book of Exodus. We see the Israelites come to a similar conclusion. This is right after Moses split the Red Sea. Okay? Okay. So Exodus says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, of course, Israel knew that God existed. That's not what this is saying. This is them seeing the display of power by God splitting the Red Sea for them and truly believing him deep in their core, having a deep trust in him. Or another example in Second Chronicles, Jesaphat, the king of Judah, says to his people, "Hear me, Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe His prophets, and you will succeed." So, do you see in that example how believing in God is kind of separated from believing in His prophets? Believing God isn't just believing in the words that his prophet says. It is that, but it's not just that. It's a deep trust in God himself. It's hanging on every word that his prophets say. And finally, in Psalm 78, we see the Lord's reaction when his people don't believe him and rather go after false idols. Psalm 78 says, His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Believing in God is not just a deeper tier of Christianity that only the strongest saints have access to. It's what we are called to each and every single day. For one final example to really hit this one home, do you all remember the story of the boy who cried wolf? I, I, I mean, I guess we can call it the boy who cried werewolf for, you know, season, seasonal appropriateness. So after the third time of the boy crying wolf, the townspeople don't believe him anymore. And the boy must have been frustrated, but honestly, I think he would kind of understand, right? He's lied about it every single time. He, he, He gets it. Yet what if there had been a wolf every single time that the boy had cried wolf? The boy had been proven true, let's say thousands, hundreds of times, and yet no one believes him. I don't think the boy would just be frustrated or angry. I think he'd be furious. And yet this is how God must feel when his people don't believe him after centuries and centuries of being true to his people. Oh, how patient is our God. Patient and true to his promises to be faithful to us even when we aren't faithful to him. So when you face a tough situation or a sad situation or a fork in the road in front of you and you don't know where to turn, do you believe God Do you not just read a Bible verse that God loves you and think, okay, well, now I'm good for the next hour until I think about it again. No, do you trust God in a deep sense, every fiber of your being, your deepest core, that no matter what, He loves me? That's the belief that lasts. That's the belief that God wants for us. But not just that. Are you quick to believe God? Are you like the Ninevites who believe almost immediately? Or are you like Jonah and you need to be dragged through the stomach of a fish, kicking and screaming before you believe God? Thankfully, our God gives us so many chances. Not infinite, but a lot, more than we deserve. So let's all commit to believing in God at the first chance. I know for myself personally, I have a lot of room to grow in this area. So let's, let's believe God sooner or even better yet, immediately. Remembering his faithfulness to you in the past and his promises for you in the future. Now if we believe God, that requires some sort of action on our part. So we'll see the Ninevites' repentance It it wouldn't make sense if the Ninevites would hear that in 40 days their kingdom would be overthrown and then they just didn't do anything about it. Even beating Jonah up and throwing him out of the city, that's still reacting to what Jonah has said. Even if they accepted their fate and went to go get their affairs in order and go down the list on their bucket list, they would still be doing something. There would still be an action on their parts. So let's start in the second half of verse 5 and go through verse 9 to see the Ninevites' reaction. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reads, the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removing his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, that we may not perish. So the people of Nineveh, they fast, they put on sackcloth, and were told to call out mightily to God with the hope that God would not overthrow Nineveh, as Jonah just preached. Now, fasting is linked to repentance because fasting is used to separate oneself from earthly and personal needs to instead focus completely on God. It's putting all comfort aside to be not distracted, but to rather seek God and to physically tell God that He is all that you need. The sackcloths and the ashes are another way to do this, but focusing more on physical comforts, right? Sackcloths are scratchy and itchy. No one one wants to sit in ashes. We see this represented perfectly with the king of Nineveh, right? He probably had a nice silk robe, and instead of wearing that comfortable outfit, he puts on a sackcloth. And this repentance of the Ninevites is so impressive, mainly because it reaches all classes and all fames. This is the king of Nineveh that we are talking about. Remember that Nineveh, even though they were going through turmoil, they were still a powerful, wealthy, and influential city. One would probably expect them to respond to Jonah's message to see, I'd like to see your God try. But instead, they take God at his word and believe him. It says that even the the king of Nineveh arose from his throne to give the proclamation, to put on sackcloth. This is not just another rising action like we talked about before, but this is also showing that he is removing himself from his place of comfort, from his place of status, that he is giving this word of God serious thought. When you hear God's word, do you arise from the thrones in your life? Are you willing to disrupt your routines, your comfort, your status to humble yourself before God's word to change? Or do you just you know, awkwardly adjust in your pew and pretend not to, not to hear it. This decree from the king even applies to their animals. Can you imagine goats and sheep walking around with sackcloths on? They even made their animals participate in the fast as well. The point here is that Ninevites were applying their repentance to everything that they own because everything that they own was at stake of God overthrowing them. Because the people and even the people's animals are turning away from their earthly needs by fasting and wearing uncomfortable clothes, it's easier to focus on God and it's easier for them to call out mightily to God as the king decrees. The king also says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence as in his hands. Now because the king and the people of Nineveh believe God and have a deep trust in God, then they know that a simple, I'm sorry, it won't happen again, isn't really going to cut it. What God wants is a change of sinful behavior, and even more than that, a change of sinful hearts, where the sinful behavior stems from. Turning from their evil way and the violence that is in their hands clearly implies more than just, let's all avoid crying for a month and, and see if this all blows over. It's a change of heart. It implies a change of the very way that the Ninevites are. And this is important, as we've learned from the Bible that man looks on the outward appearance, but what? But God looks on the heart. It really seems that the Ninevites are checking off all the boxes when it comes to true repentance. There's no limit to their repentance. As every citizen from every class and fame repents, even the animals all the way up to the king. There's a short-term understanding of their sin as they put on sackcloth and fast to understand and to call out mightily to God. And there's a long-term understanding of their sin as they seek to turn away from their sinful and violent ways and seek the Lord instead. This repentance should not be overlooked. The repentance of the Ninevites was so so impressive and so important that Jesus himself mentions it in Matthew 12. Jesus says the men of Nineveh will rise up against the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold something greater than Jonah is here. It's the same that if the Ninevites repented because of a single prophecy that Jonah gave how much more so so those who hear Jesus's message repent. Jesus is far greater than Jonah and his reach was far greater than just one city. And then finally, in verse 9, we have the reasoning for the king's decree. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. Now, the Ninevites were trying to avoid their city going overthrown, obviously, and they knew that appealing to God was the best way of doing that. It's important to note here that they aren't trying to appeal to Jonah, right? They're not trying to talk to God through Jonah. They recognize that Jonah is only a messenger from God and that they can talk to God themselves through their repentance. And I don't want to sound like a broken record, but this all stems from the Ninevites believing God, taking God at his word, believing the message is only halfway there. The other half is taking action, letting it transform them. This doesn't seem like the Ninevites are simply going through the motions. It really reads like they genuinely want to show God that they can change and are seeking His mercy through repentance. They are taking God at His word and are therefore taking His word seriously, understanding the stakes and what is required of them. Now obviously wearing sackcloth, sitting in ashes, that's that's pretty cultural, right? But there are still lessons to be learned from the Ninevites' repentance. When we repent, instead of wearing a sackcloth to remove oneself from comforts of the world, maybe if you're repenting, instead of spending an evening watching TV, maybe spend the evening reading the Bible and seeking out the Lord in prayer. Or growth groups. Every week is a great way for the men to gather together, the women to gather together, to seek God together and grow in fellowship. To call out mightily to the Lord together. Even though forming new friendships can sometimes be uncomfortable and awkward, it's good and holy to build fellowship within the church. Even fasting fasting responsibly is still a pretty good option today to realign your perspective to God. It doesn't always have to be food. I mean, Paul even mentions married couples fasting from sex. You can fast from TV, you can fast from video games, alcohol, even sweets. Anything that can be used as a crutch or distraction from God, you can fast from. Just as the Ninevite king told his people to forsake their evil ways, we are also called to leave behind our sin when we repent. Repenting isn't just saying sorry and then continuing to sin. It's a change of heart and action as we just saw the Ninevites do. So if you feel convicted about the way that you have been acting, if people have called out to you, let's say about like, your speech, about the language that you use, or mean or rude comments, repenting means that you stop that immediately, that you stop slandering or acting cruel. We want to make sure that we are representing God well and honoring His creation with our speech. If you've sinned against a friend or a colleague, it means apologizing and understanding what you've done so that you don't do it again. We can bring people into our development and therefore be a testimony to how God has worked in our lives when we apologize and speak to how God is changing our hearts. When we rise from our thrones, when we rise from our comfort, when we humble ourselves in front of other people. It's not optional for Christians to repent. It's a mandatory part of our lives to set aside our sin and to seek God instead. It's incredible to see how the Ninevites repent on a city-wide level. And it's good to use their example to model our own repentance. So let's see how God responds to the Ninevites' repentance in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, at first glance, this might seem to contradict the entire theme of taking God at his word. The thought might be, why should we even take God at his word if he's just going to change it? One might think that because God said he was going to overthrow Nineveh, that he's bound to it, that he has to do it. He cannot change his mind. Lucky for us, God himself actually addresses this in Jeremiah 18, verses 5 through 11. If you'd like to turn there, it's on page 820 in your pew Bible, 820. Jeremiah 18, verses 5 through 11. God says, "'O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this parter has done, declares the Lord?' Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and just break it down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build it and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do with it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds." God is God over all. That includes Jonah, the fish, the Ninevites, all citizens of Nineveh, and all the animals in Nineveh. He can choose to overthrow the city or not to, just like how a potter can choose how to form the clay. It wasn't if God was lying about overthrowing Nineveh, but the overall intended purpose was for the Ninevites to repent, just as he allowed Jonah to attempt to flee his presence in the first chapter so that the sailors he would run into on the ship would know God. And this is an incredibly good thing as we know that God desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth as Paul writes to Timothy. Just as a loving parent threatens to send their child to their room or ground them, the intended goal isn't to punish the child or isn't to torture the children, right? It's for the child to see the error of their ways and repent. Punishment that leads to repentance. And it's clear by the end of the book of Jonah that God had several purposes for this story, whether it be to humble Jonah, for the Ninevites to repent, for Jonah's understanding of God's sovereignty and mercy, or even for us now to understand what it means to take God at his word and how to repent well. This is why it's so important to take God at his word because he is the potter of all of our lives. God knows more about us than we know ourselves. Paul knit Caroline McDonald in her mother's womb. All of us. He knows every single hair on our head. He knows all of our days. They are numbered by him. We were made in his image and his likeness and we were created to live in perfect fellowship with him. Unfortunately, we inherited the ability to sin, which is to go against God's good design for us. This obviously puts us at odds with the holy God and God would be completely justified to punish us with death just as a potter is justified to destroy a rebellious piece of clay. Just as Nineveh was threatened with their city being overthrown, we are threatened with eternal separation from God and eternal death. But because of his love for us and his desire that we would be saved, God made a way for us to be brought back to him and to be removed of our sinful ways that lead to death. God came down to earth in human form, Jesus Christ. Jesus was 100% human and 100% God, and he lived without sin. And his words that he delivered were the exact word of God. He lived without sin. He was the perfect sacrifice to die in our place, to take all punishment for our sin. And then after three days in the grave, Jesus rose from the dead and eliminated the punishment of death from those who believe, showing that just as God has sovereignty over us, he also has sovereignty over death. Even though this way to be saved from our sin is available to all, it is not given to all. It is given to those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, and then they will be saved. As Paul writes, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you see the connections with our passage today? God relented from overthrowing Nineveh because the Ninevites believed God and sought him through repentance. They obeyed and they let it transform them. They had knowledge and they had action. And now God relents from giving us eternal damnation when we confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the action. And we believe that God raised him from the dead. That's the knowledge. There's the obeying and there's the transforming. But just as Jesus said, someone greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was reluctant, Jesus was willing. Jonah did not have the power to save. Jesus does. Jonah spent three days in the fish. Jesus spent three days in the grave. Jonah's message got Nineveh to repent. Jesus' message got the entire world for so many generations to repent. Believing in God takes both knowledge and actions. The Ninevites believed God and with the knowledge believed that their city would be overthrown. Then they took action through repentance and God relented. So church, do you believe God or do you just believe in God? If you just believe in God, then yeah, like the Ninevites, you might believe that your city might be overthrown. You might believe that death is coming, but you wouldn't know to repent because you don't know God's desire for you. You wouldn't know what what he wants, or his love for you. But if you believe God, then you have a deep trust in him and who he is. You believe everything that he says, not just the easy parts. You believe all of his word because all of his word was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because of all of this, you are saved because you believe the truth rather than twisting it into a more digestible lie. Do you believe in God enough just to come to church on holidays and special occasions and read the Bible occasionally when you just need inspiration? Or do you believe God? Do you come to church to seek Him, to worship Him, to connect with fellow believers in fellowship and to seek Him continually by the reading of His Word and prayer? It's not a matter of having a Christian checklist. It's if our actions truly align with our hearts. If we love God with our hearts, then we will seek him. We will repent when we wrong him and we will worship him truly. And with our repentance, are we we following the example of the Ninevites? Or do you not even repent? When faced with conviction for your actions or a trusted friend telling you, hey, this is not okay, do you fight back and defend yourself? Or do you seek correction through repentance? Do you humble yourself? Paul said to the Romans, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you repent immediately, as the Ninevites did, or does it take multiple instances of people coming to you, or or your behavior leading to consequences, before you finally realize, I'm in the wrong? Does your repentance come with action, like fasting to seek God? Or do you you just tell yourself that you'll stop and then return to your sin the next day like a dog returns to its vomit? Fasting or abstaining from comforts, like wearing a sackcloth, isn't meant to just show off how sad we are because of our sin. It's to point us to God as the ultimate comfort and love towards us so we are not distracted in our repentance or our seeking of Him. So in conclusion, these, these themes of believing God, seeking him in the depths of the water and repentance are all tied to the ultimate theme of Jonah, which is salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord because he is the potter and we are the clay. Salvation belongs to the Lord because he is the one who bought it for us with the blood of Jesus Christ. And salvation belongs to the Lord because salvation is a life with him. Our Lord is the only way to salvation because it belongs to Him. So believe Him. Take Him at His word and repent when repentance is needed. Let's close on Isaiah 45 where God verbalizes the importance of taking Him at His word because He is the one who saves. God says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, All righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't have to guess about who you are. We thank you that we don't have to guess about what you want from us. And we thank you that we don't have to guess about your love for us. We thank you that you are a mighty God who is powerful to save. Lord, help us to believe you deep down, not just believe in you when it's convenient. Lord, help us to respond to your word with obedience and transformation. And we thank you for your love and your salvation. In Christ's name, amen.